Imagine a world where we listen to everyone's stories and we learn we are not as different as we are the same. Each Friday morning on NPR, I listen to a three-minute StoryCorps presentation by ordinary folks like us. This program was conceived 16 years ago by Dave Isay, and today, in addition to the original site in Grand Central Station in New York City, there are five other StoryCorps sites, as well as two mobile units around the country. People are in these uh, booths telling their stories, and then they are edited by StoryCorps. Then they are submitted to the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. And since 2003, StoryCorps has given a half a million Americans a chance to tell their story, to record their interviews, and to pass wisdom from one generation to the next and leave a legacy for the future. It is the largest single collection of human voices ever gathered. StoryCorps states, we do this to remind one another of our shared humanity, to strengthen and build the connections between people, to teach the value of listening, and to weave into the fabric of our culture the understanding that everyone's story matters. At the same time, we are creating an invaluable archive for future generations. With this service, I wish to build on a greater sense of community here at UUFHC. Our setting is not a sound booth. It's a living room. I was named after my grandmother. She died a year before I was born. And I would always had huge curiosity about Grammy Hazel. And so I would ask my mother to tell me stories. What was Grammy like? And she would start to tell me, and then she would cry. The story, I never heard the end of the stories. Well, I learned about, when I was about nine, to stop asking my mother about my Grammy, because who wants to watch their mother cry, right? Well, a couple of years ago, I was going through these boxes and boxes of pictures. And in them, I found letters. I found out about Grammy Hazel through the letters that she sent to my mom. And I learned that she liked to entertain and cook, decorate her home, play cards. She was extremely gregarious. And I also learned that she was full of ideas, suggestions, and advice. <laughs> I don't even have to say what I'm going to say next, do I? <laughs> You see, I'm a lot like Grammy Hazel. So I wanted to interview Grammy Hazel today. From her letters, I'm asking her questions. Grammy, what were your thoughts about your daughter's first house from April 23, 1943? Will Mrs. Krause leave any furniture? Wish she would leave her sewing machine for you and some of the curtains and carpets and so on and washing machine. We could send up that old white iron bed in the back room, spring and mattress. It would be a good fit for your back bedroom. Why don't you put the spring on that rusty maple bed when you move? 
Do you wish I could help? I'd love to paper. Well, perhaps I can help this summer. Remember, Rome wasn't built in a day. Like I said, I was named for her. <laughs> Grammy, after you stayed to help mom in the weeks that my second brother was born, what were you thinking when you got home from July 25th, 1944? It was wonderful being with you folks, and I would rather do that than go to the best summer resort. My mother had two boys in 364 days. And what about your own boys that week? Where were they? Buddy said the English countryside was very beautiful, but that he would be very busy from now on. He was a pilot. I hope Germany will quit before he has to get into it. So glad Harold has a permanent detail that lets him out of KP and guard duty and hikes. He was stationed in the Lancaster area. From December 5th, that same year, I do not feel quite as anxious about Buddy as I think he is not in combat now. Everyone says they aren't after being wounded. And from her December 28th letter, I do feel better about Buddy since I learned he's in the 9th Army. We had a letter from him telling us he is an intelligence and educational officer for his battalion. I do hope this new offensive has not changed the plans. Perhaps they'll only be delayed. Grammy, after your Christmas visit with Mom in 1944, how were you feeling? We had a wonderful time with you folks, every minute of it. I feel how lucky we really are to have had turkey and such lovely gifts, and best of all, that we could be together. This was the last time they were together. Grammy, did you receive and write letters? January 19, 1945. We received your letter and was so glad to get such a nice long letter. We had a V-mail letter from Buddy yesterday. We also had a letter from Harold. Also had a letter from Jessica. Such a lovely letter. I haven't been out all week except to go down and mail letters. <laughs> Grammy, did you ever feel you needed to give the folks parenting advice? February 1st, 1945, and I hope I can get through this without laughing. I'll bet Harold had a good time with his rocking horse and kitty car. He's such a smart, darling child. I do hope Frank handles him more gently, as he is such a little boy. Besides the danger of physical injury, there is a psychological angel angle. He may take too great risks with himself before he has the proper strength and judgment, and also, you will expect him to be gentle with Charles, and how can you when he's handled so roughly? I often think, how gentle Barbara and Dan were with Robert. I know there is no danger of Harold ever being a sissy. I have lots of time to think of lots of things while I'm here alone all day. I sincerely hope I have not incurred Frank's displeasure by saying that I would rather do that than have him suffer remorse. Now, how do you think that all went over? <laughs> Grammy? What did you and Grampy like to do? September 25th, 1945. We went down to Maud's Saturday p.m. and stayed for supper. We went to the Bar Harbor Friday and 
She went to Bra Harbor on Friday and brought home lobsters, and Aunt Lydia made a lovely salad. All the sisters, my grandfather had five sisters, were there, and Claire, so we made eight, quite a gang. We played Beano in the evening. We also went down t on Sunday p.m., but did not stay to lunch as we got playing cards, and Dad would rather play right up till time to go home than eat. Her last letter was written on the day she died. February 19, 1946. She told my mother about her visit the previous week to visit her parents on the occasion of her father's 80th birthday. Grammy, how did you close the letter to mom in the last minutes of your life? We talked all evening about you children and the grandchildren. It was lovely of you to call, Helen. It pleased them and me. I would love to see you so much. Grammy, I'd love to see you, too. So there's going to be some pauses today after the stories. And it's, we're giving this time to you to just reflect on what you've heard. Glenn Brown served in the Army for 21 years. And he retired as lieutenant colonel. Glenn, would you and Rob please come up and tell us a story from your experiences? Glenn, um, folks don't really know very much about your early years. Uh, tell us some things that uh, made you who you are. All of, all of them? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I've only got, what, five minutes here? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I know you spent some time in Vietnam. Why don't you tell me a story about that time? Uh, everybody wants to hear about that. <laughs> well, this, you realize that was over half a century ago, a long time. So my memories get a little bit mixed. So what I want to talk about is sort of interesting to me anyway, and that's uh, how do you take a shower in Vietnam? Well, I was lucky because uh, I was an aviator, and we aviators led a better life than most folks over there. Uh, the, the infantry, the artillery, the tankers, they had it pretty rough. But we aviators were sort of dilettantes. You know, they let us sleep nicely in beds and things like that. We even had mosquito nets. That's how well it was. But showers was a different situation. Uh, we, we rigged, in our area, we rigged a 55-gallon um, drum up over our heads and uh, stuck an immersion heater in it so they keep it warm. And then there was a, a spigot or a, you know, a shower head and a chain that you'd pull to turn it on and let it off. What's interesting is when you pull that chain, you were never sure exactly what was going to happen. Sometimes icy cold water would come out. Sometimes very hot water would come out. Sometimes it would be clear. Sometimes it would be very muddy. And frequently, nothing. Well, one time, 
this is a shower I probably won't forget. One time, I'm there. It was late at night. I'd been working, doing some paperwork or something. So it was after midnight. And I'm out there getting ready to take my shower. The way you did it to save water, we only had 55 gallons for all of us to use. You'd quick get under there, pull the chain, let it stop, soap up real quick, pull the chain again, rinse off real quick, and that was it. If you were lucky, you could do it with less than a gallon of water. So there I am, ready to go. I get in there, I pull the chain. Lo and behold, nice, warm, wonderful water came out. Absolutely amazing. I probably let it run just a little bit longer than I should have. But anyway, I released the thing, I started soaping up, and about that time, the sirens went off. Well, when the sirens goes off, that means you've got to stop what you're doing, drop what you're doing, run to the aircraft, climb on board, and as soon as you had two people on board, we had a four-man crew, as soon as you had half of us there, you took off immediately. You didn't even wait for clearances, or you didn't even hover to the usual takeoff spot. You took off right there. The reason we did that was because that was an indication there were mortar rounds coming in, and we wanted to save the aircraft. The aircraft were more important more than we were even, you know. So that's what I did. I dropped my soap, ran out to the helicopter. Luckily, I remembered to take a towel with me. I got to the helicopter about the same time our crew chief did, so we had two people. He got the blades untied, pitot tube covers off. I climbed in, got the engine cranked up. We are bringing it up to full RPM, and lo and behold, my co-pilot came, and so did our gunner. So we had a full crew. We were airborne immediately, and got up, climbed up. You remember, it's pitch black dark, and I was stark naked. <laughs> first thing I realized that it's cold when you're naked <laughs> flying around there. Well, I made a report to the uh, control folks that we had a full crew, and I headed out to our loiter area. Usually what happens, you loiter for a few minutes, and then they call all clear, and we come back and land. We loitered for quite a while, and finally they said uh, they did a had they knew who all was up and what, everything. They said, all aircraft with less than full crews return to landing. Well, that was the start of a most interesting night. It was cold. And let me tell you, I really felt vulnerable not having any clothes on, even though clothes aren't going to stop anything. It was scary. But we uh, had a real interesting mission. We flew for the rest of the night, and it got, we had to stop and refuel a few times. I won't go into the details of the missions. Uh, uh, it was interesting. Uh, finally, the sun came out, and they released us to go back to our, our uh, place of where we kept the helicopters. Now I had to figure out how to get out of the helicopter and get back to my tent without being seen. 
Well, of course, by now, everybody in the neighborhood knew <laughs> that I was not properly clothed. But nevertheless, I was determined to just be cool, and calm, and collected. So I started walking back proudly <laughs> to the hooch, to, to the tent where we lived. Later on, I had to write an after-action report which was sort of rare. You usually didn't do that just for routine, but anyway, they asked me to do it. I figured I was going to get uh, chastised for being improperly dressed. So anyway, that's what happens when you uh, do st stuff in Vietnam, and uh, taking a shower is pretty important. <laughs> and uh, what did you learn after all that? <laughs> uh, if you're taking a shower, don't drop the soap. <laughs> that sheds a new light on Glenn Brown. I don't know if I'll ever be able to unsee that, but Glenn. And Glenn, we're glad you made it back home. Some of you may be familiar with the phrase, one day at a time. Becca Slintz and her daughter, Kelly Hammonds, will share now how important that phrase was to them. Hi, I'm Becca. This is my beautiful daughter, Kelly. Um, Kelly, you struggled with addiction, and you've been... Um, clean now for about 10 years, a little over 10 years, and um, I just want to ask you some questions and um, get some advice for other people that might be struggling with a family member or um, struggling themselves. Um, when did you first start uh, dealing with this problem? How old were you? And Give me a little history. Um, it started off pretty normal, like, you know, teenage years, ninth grade, kind of just the normal drinking and hanging out, you know, in high school type environment with friends. Um, that's pretty much where it started. And then um, when I was 14, I went through an experience where um, one of my really good friends, she got in a car accident and died. And it was... It was hard because um, like she was on the way to my house. We had plans to hang out like that week, go to the beach and stuff, and like she never made it there. And like I just was so young, I didn't really know how to grieve or deal with the grief. And I feel like that kind of, you know, spiraled me into the path that I went into. But in retrospect, had it not happened that way, I feel like I probably still would have ended up struggling with addiction. It just would have been a different thing that triggered it you know, in my life, so. Um, so can you tell me uh, what, what caused you to um, start your recovery process? How did, so, that, how did that happen? Um, well, luckily I have supportive family, and, you know, when they realized 
that my lies and my manipulation was, you know, it was no longer working. They could tell that something was wrong, um, and basically they intervened, and they had an intervention for me, um, and confronted me, and basically, you know, gave me the option of you go get help. And so I was um, 19 at the time I went to my first rehab, and um, when I came home from rehab, I came back to mom and dad's house, and that didn't really work out too well for me because, you know, they were, I was able to manipulate them, and they had to learn how to not be enablers, you know, and how to say no and how to put their foot down, and um, I think after going through that first rehab experience, they saw that, and so um, I went into a second rehab and I got clean that time, and I've been clean ever since. And my clean date is October 16th, 2009. I got clean when I was 20, and I'm now 30. So I've been in the recovery process now for over 10 years. I'm very proud of Kelly. Um, you know, when she was going through this, in the midst of it, I, I wondered if, if she would ever survive. But here she is today, and she just recently got married, and so proud of her. But um, anyway, so um, what is keeping you um, in recovery now? I mean, what, what's, what's keeping you here? Like, why are you different than a lot of others that haven't stayed clean? So um, I'm in a 12-step program. It, the room here today kind of reminds me of there because it's, like, all-inclusive, very welcoming um, doesn't discriminate against any kind of age, race, sexual identity, creed, religion, lack of religion. You know, it's a spiritual program. And um, I work with, you know, a sponsor that I go to for advice. I work steps. Um, I have women in my life that are earlier on in their process than me that I sponsor now. And so I'm basically a mentor type figure I still go to meetings. I have, you know, commitments. I'm involved with service, you know, within that group. Um, volunteering my time, you know, putting on events for people to have things to do, like during the holidays and other times when it might be hard for them to stay clean. And um, without that program and that support system and just having that, you know, group of people there um, as an outlet, then I definitely wouldn't have been able to make it this far because, um, you know, it's about recovering, looking at, like, internal, you know, traumas and weaknesses and struggles, um, pain. You know, those are really the things that drive those of us who struggle with addiction to act out and use. So, you know, you have to address those root issues. It's, you know, not about just, like, staying abstinent and white-knuckling it and hoping to make it through. You know, you actually have to, like, actively recover and continue to work on self. And so that's, you know, what I've been doing, and that's why I continue to stay involved in that process because I always have work to do, you know. No matter how long I've been away from that life, you know, I still struggle with addiction in other areas, you know, you can replace one addiction for another. And so, you know, we, we try and um, stay vigilant in that, you know, in the program that I go to. And so it's definitely saved my life. And without that, I wouldn't have been able to stay, you know, clean this long. How many women are you sponsoring now? I sponsor six women. Six. Yeah, all different ages and 
um, different lengths of recovery time and stuff. So it's amazing. It's how, it's how it works. It's that therapeutic value of helping one another. Right. Yeah. Um, so what advice would you give to a parent that might be having, you know, dealing with a child that they suspect mm. is um, using drugs or with a person that is suffering from addiction? What would you, what would be your advice? My advice would be, um, you know, don't give up on the person. Um, those are like the darkest times for, you know, those of us who've gone through it. And you're completely hopeless at that point, so you have no hope. You don't see a way out. So you, know, you have to continue to have hope for that person and give them encouragement and strength. Um, until they are removed from the drugs, they're not going to be able to have any kind of control. So, you know, it's also important that you don't enable the person, continue to allow them to walk all over you and give them money and things like that. Um, but also just keep in mind, too, that, you know, those of us who are addicts, we need to get help and support from other addicts. So, you know, even though you might be like my mom or like, you know, my relative or my best friend, if you don't understand the struggles I'm going through, then you might not be the best person to help me. So it's best to try and get them in touch with the, a person who can truly relate and understand. Because um, a lot of times I've heard family members will say, like, I tried everything, nothing I ever did, like, would help you. And now you go to this group of strangers, and now they're helping you. You know, how come I couldn't help you? You know, it's more of just about being able to truly relate and understand, you know, that story and that pain is, is similar, you know, between someone who's been through it before. And so that's why it works, you know, what we do in the program I go to. And what is the program? NA. <laughs> I go to NA. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So um, if there is, what, what advice would you give somebody that might be struggling with addiction? Um, I would just recommend to, you know, go to a meeting and, um, and reach out to people who have been through it and who have gotten to the other side. You know, I was naive, and I didn't know that there was help really like that. So, I, you know, when I went to my first meeting, it uh, gave me a lot of hope because those people had made it out of that. So um, it wasn't until then that I felt hope. So I would just recommend, you know, reaching out to a program or to a support system, getting honest and, and asking for help and remaining open-minded. Okay, thank you. And we admire these two women for the strength they've had. Kyler Hunnell is about to find out what kind of fun his grandfather had when he was a kid. Okay, so what was it like growing up? Actually, uh, I don't think there were a lot of real deep differences uh, from what you're experiencing, uh, but there were some One example is is that I had to walk to school. I walked to school uh, every year until I was 12. Uh, I don't recall even seeing a school bus uh, when I was growing up. Uh, 
I think maybe they used them to go to the high schools and stuff, but uh, but for uh, elementary schools and, and everything, I, we didn't have that. Uh, the first time I went to school in kindergarten, my mom walked me, showed me how to go. I think she did that three, maybe four times, and then it was up to me. Every day I had to get up at a certain time, get out the door, and get to school on time. Uh, it was about a mile and a half uh, to measles school. That was actually a brand new elementary school in uh, 1950. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I was pretty impressed with it. The, uh, uh, later on we moved and we went, I went to Lincoln Elementary and that one was uh, a little closer, it was about a mile. Uh, so that was one difference. Uh, another one was uh, we learned how to protect ourselves from nuclear bombs. Uh, we would have uh, alarms and we'd have to crawl under our, our uh, tables in the, in the uh, uh, school and cover our necks and, and wait to be blown up. Uh, so that was a... It was a there was, there was, things were really exciting about that time with uh, concerns about Russia and the nuclear weapons and all that other kind of stuff. Um, polio, uh, I remember when they lined up the entire school, that measles school, and every single kid got the polio shots. And you're standing in the hallway waiting your turn and kids are coming out having got their shot with tears in their eyes and they're just shaking with, uh, I don't know if it was pain or fear or what, but uh, sir got my attention. And uh, <laughs> uh, and I went in and got the shot and I, I was, I, it was fine. I didn't feel any problem with it. But that was a serious problem back then is that uh, polio was going around. There were, actually my dad had polio and messed up his leg. He had an open sore in his leg his whole life uh, that never did heal uh, from that. Um, so school was, school was mostly the same, but there were different aspects to it like that. So. Well, what was your childhood, or what, what are some things you did for fun? For fun? <laughs> well, we didn't have uh, computers or uh, laptops or any of that kind of stuff, so uh, we had to make our own fun. Um, my uh, brother Pat was about a year younger than I, and uh, together uh, we we played together all the time. Uh, and there was a empty lot next door to us, uh, and we used to uh, go there and play in the in the lot. One time we dug a a pit. Uh, we were digging. Uh, probably got down about three and a half, maybe four feet deep. And then we started digging a tunnel into the side of it. And it was a really great adventure. It was our little fort and, uh, and everything. Uh, and this happened around uh, the time of the 4th of July. Now, on the 4th of July, they, everybody in the whole neighborhood would be uh, firing off strings of firecrackers, uh, there would be all different kinds of rock, bottle rockets and everything else going off and everything. So the day after the 4th of July, 
all the kids in the neighborhood would run around to wherever anybody had been doing that, looking for the ones that didn't go off, and picking them up and and running back to the, you know, hiding them from their parents. But and then uh, and then we would go and play with them ourselves. You know, we would hold them in our hand and you lit it, and when it went off, it, it blew, your, blew your hand open, right? Uh, which was that was a real adventure, boy. You just you do that. And um, but Pat and I, we decided, well, I'll bet if we stuck firecrackers in the wall of that tunnel and lit them off, and then they would break up the dirt and everything, and we'd dig it all out, and then we could do some more and keep. You know, we get a really long tunnel that way. So sure enough, we went in there and we stuck a bunch of firecrackers in the wall and we lit them and. One or two of them did go off, and, but we knew they all didn't go off. So I, I, Pat, you need to go in there and find out what's going on. <laughs> Why didn't they all go off? <laughs> so uh, he was a little sucker. He went right in there. <laughs> and uh, he says, uh, well, there's one here that's kind of glowing. I'm going to blow on it. He, he, blew, he blew on it, and boom, you know, it went off right in his face, split his lip. He's bleeding all over the place. I was terrified that I'd have to tell my parents that I damaged my brother, but uh, uh, which I did do. But they they just patched him up, and he was fine. So that was one uh, story we had. Another one is there was a group of us, about five uh, boys. That uh, there was one of the houses, one of our neighborhood houses, was up for sale, and. Uh, and so it was empty. Nobody was in there. So we had a, a club, a group of, uh, you know, it was like a club of troublemakers. <laughs> and um, so we broke into the garage. And we rigged it up so that we could open the garage door by pulling on a rope from the outside of the garage. And it would open the garage door, and we could get our, in there with our bicycles and close the garage door, and then have our little club meetings and do whatever we wanted to do inside this garage. And that all worked pretty good for a couple of days, but then one day the guy that was selling the house was bringing a family around to show them the house. Well, um, we were in the garage, and, <laughs> and our bikes were there and everything. So we saw them coming, and we went and hid under... Uh, there was a window and then the workbench there, and we hid underneath the workbench. And the, you couldn't, if he didn't know about the rope on the outside, he, he couldn't open the garage door. Uh, so and he didn't know it, so he couldn't open the garage door. So he walked around, looked in the window. He's right above us, and we're all in there just kind of worried that he's going to choke us or something. And um, uh, we could hear him, and he says, there's bicycles in here. Somebody broke into this place. What's going on? I'm going to call the police. You know, oh no, we're in trouble. So, uh, sure enough, he he takes off and goes up to his car or somewhere to call the police, and uh, we hurry up and escape from the from the garage and take our bicycles home and put them in our garage and close the door so nobody could see them. And then my brother Pat and I got up on the roof of the garage where we could see pretty much most of the neighborhood, and we're, we're waiting to find out what was going to happen. So this guy comes down the alleyway, and he goes up to the back door of our house, and he knocks on it, and my dad comes out, 
and he says, uh, do you have any boys that live around here and live here? And uh, he says, sure, I got uh, two of them. And he says, uh, do they have bicycles? And he says, yep. And he says, can I see them? And he says, sure, they're right here in the garage. And he goes over, opens the garage door, and the guy says, that's it. That's the bicycles that were in my garage. And, and uh, so he got us into deep trouble. Well, we were afraid to come off the roof of that garage. We weren't <laughs> going to come down. Um, my dad had a wooden paddle. And uh, in those days, it, the paddle got used. <laughs> uh, but we finally had to come down, and sure enough, the paddle got used. Uh, but uh, uh, we had our little fun with the, with the group, so it was good. Well, a while back, you told me that you had a job at 10. Yeah. What was that about? Well, it was interesting. You know, uh, back then, I, I don't think they had the rule yet that said that uh, childhood labor was illegal. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I um, got a job with the Chicago Tribune newspaper company. And actually, I ran my own business is what it amounted to. I would buy newspapers from the newspaper company, and I would take subscriptions. I'd go around the neighborhood and get people to sign up to, to get the Chicago Tribune. And then uh, I would deliver the papers to all those people, and, and uh, at the end of the month, I'd go around and collect uh, money for the, for the newspapers and stuff. Uh, it's, and, and later on in, in California, I had a job as a, as a child, really, with still delivering newspapers, Los Angeles Time and the Los Angeles Mirror News. So uh, I don't know when they made the law that, that kids can't do those kinds of things anymore, but... Uh, that's the job I had, and it was it was pretty good. It, you know, I, I was responsible. I had to I had to deliver. I had to um, collect the money. I had to pay the newspaper company, uh, all that kind of stuff. So it was it was a lot of responsibility there. So it was good. So and that's pretty much what it was like growing up when I was a kid. Share your stories. You may never know if this gift of stories will be important in someone's life, but they will be. Trust me, I know. <laughs> 